Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey folks, just a quick reminder that the Other People Podcast is a listener-supported program. All episodes of this show are free, nearly 500 and counting. There is an official Other People app. That too is free. So, Everything's free. And what this means is I count on the support of regular listeners to help keep the show going. If you would like to throw a couple of bucks in the hat, show your support. You can do that at patreon.com slash other PPL pod. That's patreon.com slash other PPL pod. Okay. All right. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible, you know, it was like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Hey everybody, how's it going? Welcome to the Other People Podcast. It's good to be with you. I'm Brad Listy. I'm sitting here in Los Angeles, California for this, a special Sunday edition of the program. My guest today is Lisa Lucas. She is the executive director of the National Book Foundation. She was named to the position a couple of years ago at the age of 36. She's only the third person ever to hold that title, first woman and the first African-American to hold that uh, position and to do the vital work that she does in helping to advance the cause of literature and great writing in the United States of America. So she leads that uh, organization and was kind enough to spend an hour talking with me as she enters the busiest season of her year. The National Book Awards are coming up on November 15th. I'm sure many of you out there have been seeing the long lists, which have been uh, announced, have been seeing the special awards and their recipients. Like the news has been trickling out in advance of the big ceremony on November 15th. So Lisa Lucas and I in just one moment. But before I get there, I do want to offer congratulations to guests on this program from weeks and months and episodes past who have been nominated. And uh, I think it's uh, appropriate to take a moment to tip my cap to them. Uh, everyone that has been on this program who appears on a long list is appearing on this year's long list for fiction because I spend most of my time talking to uh, novelists and writers of uh, short stories and so on and so forth. So I want to offer my congratulations to Daniel Alarcon, whose story collection, The King is Always Above the People, has been nominated. Charmaine Craig, who was on the show just a couple of months ago, her novel, Miss Burma, has been nominated. Uh, Min Jin Lee, with whom I had a great conversation earlier this year, has been nominated for her novel, Pachinko. Margaret Wilkerson Sexton, 
who was on the program just a couple of weeks ago, has been nominated for her debut, A Kind of Freedom. And then Jasmine Ward, uh, a past recipient of the National Book Award, has been nominated yet again for her novel, Sing, Unburied, Sing. So, uh, you know, there's more nominees. Congrats to all. But I wanted to give a special congrats to those who have appeared on this program and, you know, with whom I've had the chance to speak and uh, share a little bit of time. Hey, everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. So having said that, let's get to the conversation with Lisa Lucas. She is the executive director of the National Book Foundation. So we finished the awards in November and then, you know, early in the year we start finding judges. Um, And so we open the awards and publishers never... um, authors themselves submit the work. So publisher will send us, you know, whatever they think um, should be in the running for the National Book Award. Um, And that's for four categories. And so once the publishers send us all of the titles that they'd like to nominate for that particular year or submit for that year, um, we start getting those books immediately to our 20 judges. Uh, We have four categories. So it's young people's literature, poetry, nonfiction, and fiction. Um, And we have 20 judges between them, five for each group, and there's one chair for each group. And so we pick those writers. That's like probably the most important thing that I do every year is pick the 20 writers that serve as judges, Um, because you want to make sure that you have so many different voices, that you have people who complement one another with the type of broad and deep reading that they've done, um, that interests and regional Things are related well um, through the composition of the jury. Um, And so we put together kind of using a secret sauce, um, a panel of jurors. And then they read, they read, they read, they read all the way from that submissions period, which I think is in March, um, until they deliver their list of 10 to us in each category. So how many books total are these? Like there's five judges in fiction, for example. Uh, How many books are they asked to read? How many nominees? 
each panel and it changes each year. But I think they just had they had just over 300. I think they had in the high 300s, like 380. Oh, my God. That's a lot of reading. Yeah. Uh, nonfiction gets the most. They got 553 books. They can't be reading all those. They got like you start them. And if it doesn't if it doesn't register, then you've got to put some books aside. I say that not uh, in a pejorative sense. Like I just say, like, there, there's no possible way people could read 500 books in six months. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I we, the, one of the interesting things about the National Book Award is that we stay out of the process entirely. We don't say this is how you read through the books. This is when you give up on a book or, or you are allowed to give up on a book or you're not allowed to give up on a book. We don't say any of that. We have the chair of one year speak to the chair, the two chairs that came before them about process and about how they managed to make it work. Um, and we really leave it to them. We set them up on a phone call and, and give them the basic eligibility guidelines, um, which are really much more structural than they are about trying to parse what is great literature and what is not. Um, and they come up with their own way through every year. So it's really interesting. So, I mean, the funny thing is, like, for all of my involvement with the National Book Award, um, I have no idea. I have no idea how they get through the books. So you can you can't yeah you have no idea like what's going on you can't tell like what's in the lead or what's it's com- nope. it's a complete mystery to you when do you find when do you find out who won they call me about a week beforehand okay and then you have to hold that under lock and key mm-hmm. like, I definitely do it's really hard I like was inter because one of our um, one of our longlisters this year was a National Book Award winner in 2011 so I was interviewing Jasmine Ward for her book launch for Sing Unburied Sing. And I had said yes to it just off, just based on the fact that she had won a national book award in the past and felt like that was part of our, you know, our organizational family. And so I find out the list and two days later, I'm sitting on a stage with her at the Schomburg and, you know, and I know she knows what I do for a living and I know she knows that the lists are coming and I know that she's on it, but I can't say a word. Oh my God. Yes. And then after that, I went over to have um, a drink at another writer's home that lived nearby the Schomburg. And she, too, was on the long list and actually had been the chair of the panel the year before. This is Masha Gessen. She had been the chair of the panel uh, for nonfiction in 2016. So she's like all up to speed on the process and what's going down at this particular moment. And she's like, you know, oh, there's no way my book is on it. But, you know, but how's it going? Is it great? And, you know, and I say I can't say anything. And (laughs) um, but I know she's on it. I mean, it was unreal. The number of people and then Grey Wolf Press. Uh, had five uh, non five long list titles this year, which is crazy. It's great for them. I mean, as an independent publisher coming out of Minneapolis to have five um, through across all of the long lists is pretty extraordinary. And um, so she's on our board, and we were having a meeting just about totally separate things because there's a complete firewall between the board of directors and the national book wars. They have nothing to do with it. I was going to ask, I was going to ask because you know, like you would think that like if they're on the board, they might be able to um, wield some influence, but that's not the case. Um, Yeah, no, they get nothing from me. Um, They don't know who the judges are until we announce them in the press. They don't know who the long lists are until the press announces it. Um, they don't see any of that stuff before it goes out. They have uh, absolutely no access to information about the National Book Awards and no influence. And so when you're talking to Fiona or you're talking to Jasmine or you're talking to Masha Gessen and you're holding this information in your head, but you can't divulge it, like, do you feel confident in the performance that you gave, the performance of not knowing? <laughs> All three of them said that I had an extraordinary poker face. Okay. 
But you just have to pretend like you don't know. I mean, it's impossible. I mean, it's just super crazy. You have to like just get some distance from it because that week it's like even reading in public, like not like there's like some spy running around following me around seeing what book I'm reading to find out what the long list is because that's <laughs> we're 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 unfortunately and fortunately not that popular <laughs> I don't know you bet I don't know New York on the subway you never know there could be somebody uh, watching but I have this total anxiety about reading books because you know I, I have to get through as much of those 40 titles by the time we get to the awards as possible so you know it's like I just need to have a book at all times but that one week you're like should I be reading this will they know and it's just I feel so free now like that you know, that I just, it doesn't matter. It's like any of those books, I can be reading them. And, and you know, I have no idea what the judges are talking about or, or what they're thinking about or where they're even at in terms of getting us the next list. So, you know, I just, I feel like, I feel like a, a major weight has been lifted. That week is like so fun, but you just want to tell everybody, it's just such good news for them. Yeah. I mean, it is, it's a great break for an author. Um, you know, you hear arguments about this kind of stuff, not only in the context of writing and literature, but in the context of the arts, whether it's uh, cinema or music or books or whatever it is with regard to handing out awards and mm -hmm. whether or not we should be handing out trophies for art and all this kind of stuff. Like, mm -hmm. obviously, um, as the executive director of the National Book Foundation, and I got that right, right? That's your title? Yeah, that's oh, my title. Okay. So as the executive director of the National Book Foundation and somebody who's running um, one of uh, the country's biggest, if not the biggest literary award of the, uh, of the year. Um, you obviously are, are in support of awards. Like where, where do you fall on that? Do you understand the argument that like uh, not handing out trophies for art, there shouldn't, there shouldn't be a best in art. Yeah. I mean, I am um, a great lover of writers and I'm a great and fierce um, lover of things that I love. So, you know, I, I'm like everyone else, right? Like a, a book that I think is so deserving and, and is my favorite thing. It's not always going to be on the list. I've had, you know, several books actually over the past just two cycles that um, even at the head of the organization that I'm like, oh, my God, I can't believe that book that I love so much is not on here. I can't believe the judges that I picked didn't pick this book. But it's like, that's fine, because ultimately I'm so encouraged by like the list coming out and people don't know all the books. People just don't always know all the books. It's not always going to be like a rundown of the year's biggest hits or most critically acclaimed or the things that got the most ink or that made its way to the most households. Um, it's a, it's a mixed bag of things that are important for ways that we might not have had an opportunity to recognize in the press, in the bookstore, you know, even for booksellers, it's a discovery process. So I really love no matter how you fall down on whether or not you can pick a best book or whether or not it is what it is. Um, I love that people are, are retweeting these tweets about these books and saying, I have a whole new bunch of books to read that I didn't know about. I have these, you know, look at all these things I'm going to tackle. There's something that's helped me to wade through the sea of books. And I know that they're going to be good, even if they're not what I think should be the, the award winner of the best book of all time or of the year or whatever. It's just like it, it helps us open up to all kinds of different experiences, literary experiences. Well, it's a great, I, it's a great marketing tool. I mean, like that, that, just the reality of it. I mean, in such a noisy world. And I think mm -hmm. the, the movies and music had this figured out. I mean, you know, they know this as, as well as anybody. They have a million award shows. You know, like I feel like there's a new one every day. But like it, in this kind of world, it gets people talking. It brings things into people's awareness. Um, mm -hmm. You know, however you may feel about handing out trophies for art, if you want to get more people reading, it would seem like kind of a necessary thing to do. 
Yeah, I mean, I think that it's a huge tool. And I think that I think that, you know, the more we can get people to sort of join us on this journey that we're going through too, of finding new books and learning about new books, because I mean, there are several books that I didn't know about that are on our list. Plenty. You know, I can't read everything. Yeah, I was gonna, uh, I was going to say, how much do you read? You, I mean, you you talked about it a little bit, always having to have a book in your hands. But like on, on an average week, how many books are you taking in? You know, I feel, that's hard to say. I've been asked that question, and they used to sort of like flippantly be like two books a week. <laughs> um, and I'm not going to do that anymore in interviews because I, it varies. I mean, it's like I've been so busy, frankly, for the past couple of weeks that it's like I don't know. I've probably gotten through three books in the past month. You know, yeah. Um, but that said, I'm always sort of flipping through a book. I'm always dipping in and out. So it's like the number of books that I have like a meaningful encounter with in any week is probably fairly significant. It's a, it's a hard, you know, I, I was reading a lot earlier in this, uh, earlier in the year and was like feeling very good about myself and then, uh, took a new job and like my schedule got super busy and I try to read at night, but then at night I'm so tired that I wind up reading like two pages and then I wake up and like the book is on my face. The best place in my apartment to read is like laying down in my bed. There's just not like I need one day I dream of just like a, a, an apartment with a beautiful place to read that like I don't fall asleep in. But I'm constantly falling asleep because where I read in my home is the most comfortable place to be for sleeping. Yeah. It's like I'm constantly hitting myself in the face with some giant book. I just or wish- my glasses on. It's like the number of glasses that have been destroyed because I went to sleep reading with my glasses on over the past you know, 20 years is like, it's, you know, it's like it's, it's cost me a billion dollars in just new glasses. See, but that seems like a more noble injury than like injuring yourself or ruining a pair of glasses because you dropped an iPad on your face, which is also yeah. a thing. I'm, but you know what? I don't e-read. It's like I really just um, I, for me, it really doesn't work to read electronically, even when it is like more convenient. Like I had to read a book for an author that I was interviewing. And I needed to read it in PDF. And it was like I could barely I was like just printed it out and had it bound because oh, yeah. I couldn't. Do it. So no, um, e-bo- no e-books, no Kindle on your phone. No, but I did read I was reading one book years ago with my iPad and I, I, I nearly injured myself actually by falling asleep while trying to read with my iPad. It was a mess. It was like the, you know, during the days of the big, heavy iPad. So, and do you, yeah, the, the, those old school iPads, those things could, they could leave a mark. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, but what about TV? You know, I'm the executive director of the National Book Foundation. Do you have a TV in your apartment? Or are you somebody who watches TV? Uh, yeah, I watch so much TV. <laughs> <laughs> Good. That makes me feel better. Television. Are you kidding? I like like horrible television too. I'll watch anything. Okay. I was just curious. I didn't know how austere, you know, the, the yeah, your no, life. I'm, I think I'm definitely, um, you know, I think one of the things that, that, you know, people find interesting about me in this role is that I like don't have a lot of snobbery about that stuff. But that's refreshing. Like, that's re- like all I, there is is literature. Right. Well, I think I that, like storytelling. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think, but I think that's, I mean, like I can tell you, like just not knowing you going into this conversation all that well, but like kind of getting a, a sense of you from like social media and stuff um, is that, you, you know, you have an ease and a openness um, on social media, on Twitter at least, that I find very refreshing for somebody in your role. Because a lot of times I feel like, um, organizations like the National Book Foundation, it's like uh, some sort of ivory tower. It's like, who's in there? Who's doing that? And you have made yourself accessible, which I think is to your credit, because um, if we want to get more people reading and we want to get books you know, a little bit closer to the center of the cultural conversation, then uh, it would seem to me that somebody in your role should be out there mixing with people. 
Yeah, and I love people. I love chatting about stuff. And, you know, I mean, I think, like, you know, so I was 36 when I um, got the job. I'm 37 now, um, pushing pushing towards 38. And, I mean, I just think, like, it was so intimidating to get the job. Like, it was just sort of like, and, and you know, I guess there's also this sense of sort of now looking back, and I was like, I got this job, and I'm, the, you know, running the National Book Foundation. Oh, my gosh. And now, you know, you realize, like, oh, man, I, I was really so excited about this you know, thing. There's so many people who run cultural, cultural institutions and, you know, so many different important cultural institutions. And so many of them are so much bigger than ours. But for me, it was very intimidating. And it still feels so tremendously important to me that, like, maybe I over, um, you know, overstate, like, our value um, and because it's so personally important to me. But, you know. Um, well, let me ask you. Let me ask you about that. Because 36 years old. Um, yeah. Young. First woman and first African-American to uh, be in your role. There's only been three executive directors of the National Book Foundation. Do I have right. that right? Yeah. Uh, and I know that, you know, in a lot of the press that you did right around the time that you uh, took the job or it was announced, focused on this kind of stuff. And I think there's been a lot in uh, those conversations, but in just like literary media generally about making the book world more inclusive, more representative of the diversity of voices out there. Um, make, making sure that women have a stronger voice in publishing and get um, more attention in the literary press. I mean, there's organizations like Vita um, that, you know, do a good job of keeping track of this stuff and making sure that people understand um, disparities in that, um, you know, in that area and so on and so forth. So, like, how do you conce uh, conceive of, you know, your role with regard to this kind of work and making literature, you know, more accessible, um, but also more representative? Sure. I mean, I think on some level, we have to think about it on two levels. And I said this a lot early on when all, all those interviews about sort of being the first woman and the first person of color and tell me about your plans for inclusivity for, you know, the National Book Foundation and your thoughts on inclusivity and in literature, the answer was also just, it's got to be really, really broad. Uh, you know, as much as as a black woman, I think about the inclusion of people of color and I think about women sitting at the table. I think it's also about region. It's about socioeconomic status. It's about every single kind of way that people are excluded. And thinking about the fact that when you are um, effectively trying to get people to participate in something to actually buy a book or borrow a book, um, that numbers are your friends, right? So it's like, so you want to be, you cannot be alienating um, the people that are going to make books soar because they want to take part in them. And, and secondarily, I think it's how do you make people want to take part in literature and in books? And that's by not condescending to, to by otherizing everyone. Right. And, and coming up with this assumption of who the reader is and who what kind of voice will actually be able to activate the community of readers. And to, to really sort of start from zero and say, if I wanted to build a country full of readers, you know, how do I make sure that everyone is a part of this and a participant in this? Yeah, I mean, because I, I, I was thinking about this. I was thinking about um, your central task, you know, as the uh, in your role at the, at the National Book Foundation is to try to get books uh, into people's hands and to get people reading and talking about books, um, you know, more and more. Yeah. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I imagine you have strategies to do that. There are events. There are these awards. Um, mm -hmm. There are various, uh, you know, community outreach things that I'm sure you're doing. But, mm -hmm. you know, to talk about um, 
technology again, you know, just as we were discussing, I, I sometimes wonder as a person who loves books and, you know, uh, has worked in, in around publishing for a long time, you know, is the world that we're living in just too noisy? Is there just, is it, I mean, it feels like it's not designed to make space for reading a lot of the time. Do you know what I'm saying? I think like it's the opposite. I think it is creating a world that is so noisy and so busy and so overwhelming that the quiet solace you can find in a 300 page book is something that becomes more and more appealing. Let's hope. I mean, cause I, I agree. I mean, like I find it so nourishing and like, and, uh, what's the word? I don't know, but you just come away from it feeling like, ah, you know, it's the, the yeah. it's like the slow food that you need. But I, I also can feel a certain anxiety sometimes that like my life is moving so fast and things are so hectic. And it's like systemically, I'm like, where can, can we have some space? Can we have like a timeout period? <laughs> you know, for, for... Well, I think it's, you know, books, the one thing that, you know, stone cold truth is that like books take time, right? right? It's not a slow form or it's not a, it's not a fast format. You can't just pop in and be done with it. Um, there are, you know, short stories that you can pop into, but like, but, but generally speaking, if you have a book and you want to read the whole thing, it's going to take you a little bit of time. And it takes a certain type of patience, um, especially if you're out of the habit of reading, right, to just getting used to that format. Just like if you were to go back to 1989 and be like, OK, here, so I want you to watch um, all 100 episodes of The Wire in the next four weeks. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's like nobody would have been prepared to start binge watching. It would be like, oh, my God, everybody's turned into a zombie. You know what's happening? It would have been a mess. So I do think that you have to spend some extra time with people um, helping them to find great reading experiences so that we can get people back in the habit. And then I think once you have that habit, I think you can recognize how essential taking that time out and how like almost meditative it is to, to sit with a slow story sure. that, you know, is a you know deep relationship with a piece of text. Well, uh, well, I want to, I want to ask you too, because, uh, you've worked in different areas. You worked for the Tribeca film festival. Is that correct? Mm -hmm. Uh, you also did some work in theater yeah. and I, uh, you know, was reading an interview that you had done where you were talking about like things that you learned in those roles and working in different media. And one of the things that stood out to me was that, you know, theater does a very good job of trying to do outreach to young people to get them in the habit of going to the theater and, yeah. uh, and, you know, uh, experiencing it from a young age. And I think that like, that's probably a good idea when it comes to books as well. It's probably a good idea for anything, uh, of values that, you know, the, the earlier people start and the earlier people sort of get into that groove, the better the chances that they're going to carry it with them going forward. You know, I think it's interesting. I agree. I absolutely think that it's essential, um, to make sure that we're reaching young people. But, um, I think that it's, you know, it's when you look at the landscape and I'm still learning about it. Like I know a lot about film arts education and theater arts education. And I'm still learning about like all the work that's being done um, around books. But, you know, you see the libraries all around the country, very active with young people. Um, you see schools, obviously every kid is, I mean, what kid goes to school and never reads or sees a book? No one, right? That's like not a thing. One hopes. So, <laughs> you know, schools are doing all this work. And then there's all these literacy programs that are sort of saying you have to be at a certain reading level by this time. And what I think that we can do and that I think more of us need to do that I think theater or film or dance does really well is to also remember to talk not just about the benefits of reading literature, but the joy of it. And I think that we have to do some work really talking to kids and doing the joy work 
right. and making sure that it's not, I always say, I say it over and over again. I'm like tired of hearing myself say it, but it's like, we don't want to be the spinach. We want to be the cake. Right. So there's a universe in which you provide those opportunities for young people to encounter literature as a pleasure rather than a learning tool. Yeah. I mean, I think that's the thing. I think so much of the time or, or too much of the time, books are associated with like the drudge work of uh, academia, your homework, you got to take this home and all this kind of stuff. And, um, you know, it's important to kind of instill, like you said, the fun part of it. And, and, um, you know, it's fun as a, I have, a, I have two kids and my daughter's like super into Harry Potter as like, <laughs> it's like a rite of passage at this point. Um, but it's incredible to me, you know, she's seven years old and to see how invested she is in this world. And she's got like Hermione posters on her wall, <laughs> you know, like, yeah. but well, I, and you know what? that's like so many kids learn to love reading by reading Harry Potter. But I mean, it's like, I never read anything like Harry Potter in school. I was given things that were like supposed to be instructive. Yeah, like not this. things that were fun, but it's like I mean, I, I would imagine you can learn some things from Harry Potter. Well, I've seen, I've seen like the you know, I don't even it's probably some like link that I clicked on the internet, but it was about kids' sense of like ethics and morality or whatever it was, um, and children who had read Harry Potter in their youth or people who had read Harry Potter in their youth scored higher, like you know, as, as they age. So I think it's doing some good work. I mean, I'm a, I'm a big J.K. Rowling fan. Any anybody who can get seven-year-olds to hang on through like a 700-page novel is doing something right. <laughs> I'm amazing. She's extraordinary. And I just think that like, also, we, we really think about what books we're giving to young people and, and are they exciting and are they valuable? Also, they have to be both. We want things to hit both notes. And we also want kids to, to have the opportunity to choose what they want to read. You know, do you remember those like those book fairs? Sure. You know, and you got to just pick what you wanted. Which is some of the, that's the fun of it. I mean, my daughter, yeah, she goes, she, they, they do this thing at her school in the library and she gets to come home with a book and she's always way more excited about that book than the one that like, I'm like trying to foist on her. <laughs> yeah. And there's an openness that comes from volume. You know, it's like the more you read and the more positive experiences you have with books, the more you're going to be like open to trying something new. So what about you when you were a kid? Like what kind of reading environment did you, did uh, you grow up in? I guess I was always, um, I loved to read when I was a kid. You know, I loved, I was read to a lot. Books were an important part of my household. Um, you know, everybody in my family like has, you know, overflowing bookshelves. My mom in particular was always a great lover of not just reading, but also the book as object. Um, so they always felt like really like, like something that had a, real, a lot of value, like something that were important. Um, and so that I think like encouraged me along the way, but I always love stories. I mean, I've always loved movies and I've always loved television and I've always loved books. And I think I've just liked to see stories about people in the world. Um, so as a young reader, um, I loved like, you know, sci-fi and fantasy and all kinds of different things. There were, you know, I loved Bridget Herbithia. I loved, you know, from the mixed up files of Basil E. Frankweiler, uh, <laughs> You know, I loved I loved the stuff that kids loved. I also loved like books that other kids loved. I remember very strongly, you know, passing around at camp Sweet Valley High books because everyone was reading them and talking about which care which Babysitters Club character you loved the most. I loved the social nature of reading. That was very much a part of the books that I read when I was in school. And you know, oh, you, at school, you uh, your father is uh, like has musical like a rich musical uh, background. I was reading up a little bit uh, and just kind of stumbled into it. I did not know this about you, but he uh, we should note like was a, played with Miles Davis mm -hmm. and, and produced a Madonna record. Yeah, 
That's incredible. Like, did yeah, you- yeah. He's so I mean, it grew up so on his side. I mean, my dad is actually not. He's a reader, but he's not like the most obsessive reader of the clan. Um, he, but he's an artist. You know, he he made his way. So there was real value around art, right? Like it was always like that's not like a silly, trivial thing. That's like a vital part of life. Yeah. I mean, did, did you grow up around this? Like, were you going to his shows? Were you around Miles Davis? And I mean, I, I don't know how, I guess you were probably too young. Yeah. He, I wasn't born when he was still playing with Miles, but yeah, when, when I was little, um, we had a recording studio in our basement and my dad later on opened a recording studio in Jersey city. And so I was always around, you know, as a young person, you know, lots of different musicians and, you know, I grew up with like engineers in our basement. I'll never forget this engineer, uh, had a salad and it had beets in it. And I thought the beets were cranberry sauce and I loved cranberry sauce. And he let me eat that beet and I didn't eat another beet for 20 years. So. <laughs> I'll never forget him. Yeah. What about you as a writer? Like, do you write? No, I'm not a writer. You're not. You're a reader. I'm a reader. And you never have had any interest in trying to put pen to paper and do something. I like maybe wrote like a, like a poem about a boy I had a crush on when I was in the third grade, but like, no. That was it. Yeah. And then That's what, what, uh, what did you do? So let's talk a little bit about your career prior to National Book Foundation. We touched on it earlier, but you came out of school and what started working for Steppenwolf? Yeah, I went straight to, so I started like working in internships and over the summer at like companies, like sort of semi real jobs actually, cause I'd been doing it for so long when I was 15. So the summer of 15, I worked at Vibe, and then I worked again the next summer, and then I worked at um, KISS FM in New York, which is a radio station. And then through college, for two summers, I was the, a PA for the Judge Mathis show. I'm not familiar with this. What is it called? The Judge Mathis show is like a huge, it's like Judge, it's like Judge Judy. Oh, okay, okay. It was on for a huge amount of time. Anyway, it was a big Judge show that was on daytime television. Gotcha. So um, I'd done all that, and I sort of knew when I left college that I didn't want to work at any for profits. Um, I wanted to do something that was a little more art based and less commercial. Um, and so I went straight at 21 years old to, to, uh, to Steppenwolf. Which is, which is like the theater company founded by what John Malkovich, Mm -hmm, Gary Sinise. Um, it's an ensemble based theater company in um, Chicago that does extraordinary work and really nurtures um, a great ensemble of playwrights and and actors um, and directors. And they just, they've been doing incredible work from the minute that they started. And it's been a delight over the years to have been a small, small, not very meaningful piece of the history of this, you know, really groundbreaking and important um, cultural institution. Yeah. They've they've put, I mean, a lot of actors who have gone through, that that program have gone on to do great things for sure. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So then what about after Steppenwolf? So you, you go, so to- I just got homesick. So I'd gone to college in Chicago and I uh, stayed there for just about two years afterwards working at Steppenwolf. And I just, I just remember, I mean, it was like the craziest thing I've ever done, but I just like walked in and I was like, I'm moving back to New York, not realizing that what I just said to my boss was that I quit. <laughs> uh, Cause again, I was like, I mean, I, I started there when I was 21 not even really about to turn 22. And I left when I was 23. So I was really young, like super young to have had two years of full-time employment in like a managerial capacity at a major cultural institution. Even if I did something like ridiculous, it was really crazy. Um, but I got homesick and I, I just missed home and I wanted to be back East and, um, I just came home. 
not knowing, I, not knowing what you were going to do. I, no, didn't know what I was going to do. Uh, ended up at a theater company called um, Tada, which is a youth um, youth theater that does musical theater for kids. And it also has like a little ensemble of young people that train and perform these plays for families and children around New York City. And does in-school work and all kinds of cool outreach stuff. And I, I, I was interested in young people. At Steppenwolf, I had been a volunteer for their burgeoning education program. And I thought it was just so cool to get kids pumped about theater. And so I guess I, that stuck in my mind and I'd really, you know, enjoyed that experience. And so when a children's theater was opening up a job, I thought that would be cool. I'd like to spend my days, you know, encouraging young people to enjoy theater. And um, so I did that for a few years and left. And, you know, I think I just kind of burn out on theater as like a professional. It was like a thing I love and have always loved, but it just wasn't my calling. Um, I, I wanted to do something that I was just like on fire for. Um, and I was always a huge movie person. And so a job opened up at Tribeca when I was 25 and, um, it was to run an educational after school program for, uh, young filmmakers who wanted to learn more about the film business that we called Tribeca film fellows. And I went and I did that job and it was supposed to be a seasonal position. And I stayed seven years or so, um, and was the director of education there and built out programs that um, served young people around New York City by bringing them to screenings, by teaching them how to use cameras in the classroom. Um, at one point, we funded other programs that were encouraging young people to do film. Um, we held a contest for young filmmakers in New York and all kinds of stuff. So we did that and it was great. And I uh, spent a lot of time there and I learned a lot there and um, and then I left and was a bit adrift again at 31 or so and loved literature. And all throughout all of these jobs, I was always the person running around with a book in my hand trying to be like, you should read this. You should read this. You should read this. <laughs> um, and I just had a good friend from college who was um, a novelist, is a novelist. And she was launching her book at that time, Kathy Chung. Uh, who wrote a book called Forgotten Country. And she was a college classmate of mine. And, you know, she dragged me around and let me come and see what she was doing. And I met a couple of editors and she thought it was a really interesting and unique world. And she also happened to be an editor uh, in the fiction department at Guernica, um, which is a magazine of art and politics, an online magazine that I um got really excited about and she said well maybe you can plan some events for them we're all volunteer and you know it might be cool to just get your feet wet and start thinking about doing something that's a little more literary since I was consulting but I really you know was was processing what I wanted to be when I grew up and I had a conversation with Meekin Armstrong who is the fiction editor longtime fiction editor at Guernica and um, we had this great far-ranging conversation about nonprofits and how you reach people and all the assets that Guernica had, all the strengths it had, all the goodwill that it had, all the wonderful work it was doing. And I fell in love. Um, and I joined the team and I was associate publisher when I started and very quickly became publisher. And I did that for three and a half years. Um, and we tried to build up the audience and tried to build up the fundraising and to, um, so can I, can I stop you there? I'm curious. I'm curious to ask you about, doing something like that because that's uh, a world that i've dabbled in over the years and obviously 
um, with this show, there, there are a lot of people out there who are publishing online, trying to reach or, you know, build a community and reach readers. Like what was the strategy? Like, cause you guys had a lot of success at Guernica. I'm interested to know how you did it. You know, I mean, I think that one, I came in far, far along in the history of Guernica. So it wasn't so much about creating a magazine that was appealing to people. I didn't have to do that work. Michael Archer and Joel Whitney and the founders, they did that work. And the editors did that work. They did that work for nearly a decade before I showed up. And so what I did, and and I think what the strategy was, was to take all of the goodwill that had been built up with a really strong core of people um, and to really just work to amplify that, to assess the strengths of the magazine, to think about all of the back work that could be used to illustrate how important it was as a magazine you know, to say, look at how many people we've published, look at how many, you know, and to really just take that information and actually make it work, um, in an audience building capacity. Um, you know, we thought about social media, we thought about the channels that we had, um, we thought about, you know, how to, you know, use our website and, and, and and ask for money for the first time to say, look, we do this for you for free. We work for free. Um, we, this, we do this because we believe that this information should be out in the world, um, and accessible to you. And then, you know, it's the same sort of strategy, I think that it is for, for Tribeca and for, um, the National Book Foundation. It's just to de-snob the whole thing, you know, a a 5,000 word long form piece about, you know, a political situation in a far-flung place, like, isn't just for people who have PhDs. Right, right. For people who live in the world. Well, so how do you, yeah, and I guess, like, part of, that's an editorial question, is making that um, writing accessible, like, like yeah. widely accessible, making well, the sure... editors you... just do the work, right? The editors do the work. They do the work they believe in. They, you know, suit the mission of the organization. But when you're not on the editorial side, it's like, what I can do is contextualize that work for you. I can frame the work for you. I can direct you to the channels. I can um, have a party, you know, that, that helps you know what the community looks like and that you are a part of it and to feel connected. So how do you get from Guernica to National Book Foundation? I mean, I, um, so I wanted to just, when I finally took the leap and went full time at Guernica, I was just like, I'm never going back to doing anything but work that supports writers and readers ever. I just was like, this is it for me. And maybe one day I'll eat those words, but right now I still feel the same way. And so because I was so new, you know, I'm 32 years old, I think, when I started at Guernica. And it felt to me at that time like I was a late stage career changer. I didn't really think as much about the flow through between always being a nonprofit professional and how like actually like I did the same thing without ever really changing my career. (laughs) But changing into being a person in publishing in some form or fashion was very new to me. And I didn't know the editors. I didn't know the agents. I didn't know the other nonprofits. I didn't know the community. And that's always how I've done my work is by, you know, linking arms with the community around me professionally. And so I just set about with like a really profound fire behind it, getting to understand the world in which I wanted to work. I met everyone. I read every book I could. I, you know, went to every party and I learned and learned and learned about what 
this world of books was. And even though books were not the essence of what we were doing at Guernica, we were so strongly related. We were publishing excerpts. Many of the authors that we published had books. We were always thinking about um, the work that we could tie to that was book related. And I, um, and that was, you know, my own personal interest as well. And so that's just the direction that it took me. And I just cared about book stuff. And I also got invited to the National Book Awards after party while I was there. And I remember while well, I was at Guernica in the first year. And I remember going to that party and thinking, holy shit, this is amazing. This is my tribe. This is who I want to this be with. But also just my heroes were in the room, everybody. And it was so open and welcoming. And uh, it's funny, three people that I had conversations with that night, three editors, well, two editors and, and, and one writer, um, are like my dearest friends now. Hmm. And it was just such a beautiful night. And, um, and that happened during the time that I was at Guernica. And so I think just the force just kept pushing me towards books. I knew also at that time I couldn't get a job in books. Like nobody would hire me. Like I was not like, no, who's going to make me an editor? Like coming from Tribeca. I mean, people still are trying to make sense of my history, you know? So nobody would hire me. I mean, it definitely interviewed for jobs. And until like 2013, like after two years of really trying to figure out what I was doing, like two full years, even into 2014, it's like I just couldn't get a job. So I made a job. And uh, like, and so what did that look like? You, you mean you made a job where? At Guernica. I mean, we, we, we had never had an employee. I was the first one. Gotcha. Okay. And then, and then how does that take you to the National Book Foundation? Well, so by making that job, I was able to develop the experience and the resume of some sort you know, in a world that was understandable by publishing. So I had to create the experience that would let me work in books. That's a good lesson. That's a good lesson. Like in organizations, like or in a business, wherever somebody's working, um, you, you know, sometimes you, I mean, I guess you have to ask for permission to a certain degree, but you just sort of start creating your own path. You, it's like, it's yeah. a little, little bit of moxie and a little, uh, what's the word initiative, I guess is what I would say. I sound like my dad, but you know, like, yeah, right. <laughs> but it's, well, it was hard. I mean, I cried a lot during those years. Like, I mean, I really, I had between 2011 and 20. 14, let's call it. I mean, I was like hysterical. I, I had I'd sort of gone out on my own and I, I knew I would be okay ultimately, but it was just like I was freelancing and consulting and that was inconsistent in a way that I had never experienced. And, you know, it, it seems all like straightforward in the retelling, like, oh yeah. And then I, I went to a party with Kathy and I wanted to work in publishing and then I did this thing, but it wasn't like that. You know, it's like, it was a real transition between like sort of what feels like two lives Um, But I was scared out of my mind the whole time and broke half the time. And it was just really hard. So, I mean, I think the thing is, the lesson for me is, yes, you have to sort of make your own way and to really, you know, push ahead. Um, But you also have to, like, just not let the fear of change break you in half. And there are a thousand times that it almost did. Hmm. And, yeah, I mean, and I feel like... uh... A lot of times people who are, uh, you know, feeling their way into a new role, uh, you got to give yourself some time, you know, like it, it's a, the, the scary part. And I'm kind of going through this myself right now. The scary part is like hoping that you can have enough time to learn what you need to learn to be effective at the job, 
like, is there going to be enough time? Do you, do you know what I'm saying? I it's like, it's kind of like a race to become competent. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. You have to give yourself time. I mean, everything, it's like, you, it's like a, somebody was, I was having a conversation with a friend about, um, about just sort of like change. And I was like, you know, the honest thing is you have to look at a bigger canvas. It's like, sometimes it takes five years to see what happened. And right. we all want to measure in hours and, and, and days and weeks and months. But really, like careers play out over years. And sometimes the pattern or what's happening isn't necessarily clear until yeah. some time goes by. You know, so just being able to hold, you know, and, 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 I, and I don't say that in a flippant way, right? Like, because a lot of people would be like, I don't have the money to hold. And, you know, I didn't either. I worked. I, I did every job under the sun during the time. It wasn't like I just had, I had a little, you know, I'd been working for years, so I had a little room. But I didn't have a hell of a lot of room. I mean, it's just, I have to say, like, I think when I, I think I had like $250 in the bank, you know, at the point that I like got, like that I start that I went on full time at Guernica. Wow. Well, and sometimes and I, it, it, was like not entirely sure, like what the hell was going to happen next. Well, that sometimes I feel like, I mean, I, it's nice to think that life works out like that. I guess sometimes it does. Sometimes it doesn't, but it's nice that it did for you. You know, like right when you, yeah. right when you're at like the, the breaking point, things, you know, things shift and you get your break and, um, something comes through, you know, mm -hmm. and it, it often does. I think that it often does if you're working hard and you're putting yourself out there. And like one of the things that strikes me in listening to you talk about your career is that, um, even though there have been, you know, periods where things weren't necessarily certain or they were more challenging than you would have liked. Um, I mean, and that's, that's really the case for all of us, I would imagine. But I think what differentiates you, um, or, or what stands out to me is the fact that you, you really show up. Like you've kind of just put yourself out there. You show up, you're meeting people. Like you go to this national book awards, uh, ceremony years ago, which was a pivotal moment. And it's just worth remembering, you know, that, um, I mean, it's like, you know, it's kind of the cliche. What is it like 80% of life is showing up, but yeah, I uh, just always wanted to be in motion. I mean, I, 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 you know, sometimes it wasn't even, it wasn't about, I mean, it, it might, I might've made it more about money actually, you know, <laughs> for survival, but like it just, um, it was always about just feeling like I was engaged and in motion. And I was, you know, I've always believed in, you know, there was a, this is a sort of weird anecdote from back in the day, but so there's, um, this woman who ran a theater company called the new victory theater company, which is a children's theater. That's part of that's down in, on Broadway. And she was doing a PhD and she was doing a research project about, um, something called the blueprint for, uh, teaching and learning in the arts theater. And that's, um, a document that governs all arts education K through 12 in the New York city school, um, system. And so I remember I just, she hired me and paid me, you know, I don't know, whatever to transcribe all her interviews for this dissertation she was writing. And I listened and I was so engaged by that. And I kept in touch with this woman, Edie Demas for, for a really long time. And years later I was hired to be the chair of the um, blueprint for film and to, to work on drafting that for New York city. And I feel like I've always had a real sense that everything is connected, that that conversation when I'm 22 years old with a woman who's just hiring me to transcribe some stuff that she doesn't have time to do is connected to the fact that I actually did that big committee to develop a citywide curriculum for film instruction in New York City. And that committee Right. There's somebody on that committee that has something to do with the arts education work that I do right now for the National Book Foundation. And so that constant 
sense of meeting and being present for the things that you're doing and remembering the people that you work alongside or that you learn from and figuring out how to connect those dots at every point of your way is the thing that propels you really forward. And so it always felt valuable to me to not in like a climby, you know, sort of get to know everybody way, but to like really just learn about what everybody was doing, because that was always the thing that that propelled all of the work that I had done forward were, were the the collaborations and the conversations and the mutual learning and the sharing. And so I just tried to do that, even though I didn't really have a real professional reason to. Well, I want to ask you um, before we go, I want to ask you about an aspect of your job that is maybe like uh, the least sexy aspect, and that's fundraising. And it's something that you've done in uh, various jobs throughout your career. So it's not just like the, it's not like this is the the first go round for you at National Book Foundation. But you know, when you're working in nonprofits, when you're working um, in the arts, you know, it's very often the case that you have to do uh, this kind of work. You have to reach out to people. You have to try to uh, drum up financial support. And I think a lot of people, you know, they think about the prospect of doing such a thing and. Uh, you know, they sort of recoil a little bit. Like, mm-hmm. how, how do you make sense of that process? Do you enjoy that part of it? Do you find... It does seem like a big deal to me. I mean, it never has. Like, I mean, it's like, so if I say to you, hey, do you want to give me 25 bucks for this project that's going to deliver books to children around the country? I mean, why would that feel bad? Now, there's a certain type of fundraising that I think people think of when they think of fundraising that is like the person on the street with the clipboard that tricks you into talking to them and then tries to get you to sign up for $10, like in that very moment, that's like, um, disruptive and aggressive and really tricky to manage. And it's not like that. You know, I don't send out a hundred fundraising emails a year. I'm not, um, we're not begging for money. Do you know what I mean? It's like, we're trying to get people to be, um, participants and stakeholders in this work with us. And so it's just as, um, it doesn't feel harder to me that to ask somebody to read an article than it does to say, participate in this because it's, what's the worst they're going to say? No. Am I going to be angry if somebody for whatever reason it is, doesn't want to financially support the work that I'm doing? Absolutely not. So it always feels really comfortable to say, Hey, you know, it's like, because there's not a pressure to it. You're not pressuring people into giving you money. You're having a conversation about whether or not they want to support the work you do. And you're doing it in a way that doesn't say the other side of this conversation is you're dead to me. (laughs) So like, how does, how does that look though? In like the day to day, do you have events throughout the year or are you doing like personal outreach to potentially? Yeah, there's so many different ways that it happens. You know, I mean, it's like you're fundraising um, and writing proposals and building relationships with institutions that might support the work that you're doing. Um, there's city funding, which is like a lot of, you know, sort of very detailed questions and um, making sure that you're you know doing all the things that an organization that the city or that the state or that the country can feel okay about funding funds and understanding and learning about that process. So that's like grant writing. Um, then you have individual giving, right? Which can be like, come to our karaoke party for 25 bucks and it'll benefit book up, right? Like that's another kind of fundraising where you, you know, sort of, you're really saying, Hey, come, we're going to do something fun together. And then we're going to charge you a little bit more for it because we want to actually raise money for this thing. Um, and that feels really easy to do as well, because you're not like, it's not um, an uneven exchange. It's not, you give me a check and I do my work and I say, thank you. It's like, we're both in, you know, enjoying a benefit from this kind of work. 
And then you have something like the National Book Awards, which is our biggest fundraiser. And so that's really different because it's like you throw, again, an event that people can enjoy and take part in. But it's very expensive on the funder level, right? So it's like you're bringing people in and you're saying, you know, come and have this event. But also it's very clear that this is a fundraiser. And um, but at that level, you're sort of saying, look what we do. Um, I want you to, to share in the most important and loudest and most visible thing that we do. Um, and I want you to really help us make a commitment to doing this again and again. Um, and you have sponsors at that level. You have, you know, all kinds of different um, stakeholders in the National Book Awards. Board members are really engaged. And so that's its own thing. Um, and then, of course, you have sort of trying to, like, cultivate and court um, a large number of or a medium number or a small number even of people who uh, want to support the work that you do in a really meaningful way. And I think that that's the fundraising that I think is, like, probably the hardest to understand for people in general. And actually, like, not something that I've done a, a huge amount of, but I've done some of and do more in this role. And that's sort of – that's just relationship building. It's like you don't show up – you know, you don't say – I think this person might be like have a lot of money and you don't call them up and say, hi, you have a lot of money. This is what I do. Will you give me some of your money? <laughs> that's what I was thinking. That's what I was imagining is how it you know, works. Like, yeah. Right. It, it feels like that. You just like roll, roll up and ask for some cash. And it's like, it's not like that. You, you build a relationship. You want to create a bridge to the work you do. You want to understand what the funding priorities are for that person or that institution. So almost all of it, whether it's, talking on Twitter all year long about the work we do. And then at Christmas sending a tweet and saying, Hey guys, I want to see if any of you want to support this. It's just relationship building. I've been all year building a relationship with not me for the point of, but with the work, you know, Mm -hmm. and people will maybe give or they maybe won't, you know? Um, and then you build with, you know, people that come back year and year to the awards or you build with people who, you know, expressed an interest and might want to really meaningfully support you. And you just keep building a relationship and then it, you conversationally get to it. So it's I just think it's the art of, of of knowing people, liking to listen to what they say and liking to share very clearly um, both what you do and where what you do aligns with what they care about. So do you ever get like I mean, have you ever gotten like a giant check out of the blue from like some you know, some widow or heiress or, you know what I'm saying? Like you hear about these no, kinds we haven't of gotten, like the million dollar, like, you know, somebody just sent a check and we've never heard of them. We've gotten some significant donations that have just come from people. You know, there was a, a gentleman who sent us $5,000, um, which was you know to me. It's all significant to me. $10 is significant to me. Um, I don't actually distinguish between those gifts. I think that every, every dollar you get is a vote, Right. So how every person uh, makes a check is a vote, but like, but you know, so we've gotten a few of those and it's cool. It's great. So if somebody listening to this program would like to support the national book foundation, how can they do that? On our website. You are just like everyone else. You have a little donate button and you can see where you can send some, send some money. Okay. And then what about this year's award ceremony? Like, and you were talking about how it's expensive to go and like how that's a, you know, it's a fundraiser. So you have sponsors and you have tables, I'm sure. And there's different, levels of support and everything, but like for the average writer living in New York or in New York that week, like how do you get a ticket to the national book award ceremony? Um, it's, it's by invite. Um, we invite lots of people who've been on our long list and finalist lists and, you know, just lots of folks that we have a relationship with in the writing community, the nonprofit community, you name it. Um, um, so there's not a good way for like your standard issue listener to be like, may I come to the awards? And then we have another big, 
party though afterwards, the after party, which has a separate invite list, which is like a really huge list that a committee helps us put together of people, you know, in publishing, whether it's writers or, um, people who work in publishing readers, just general fans of literature. So who, okay. So where is the national book award ceremony this year? Who's hosting? Like, can you give us some details? Um, host TBD. I'll tell you soon. Oh, so we haven't, uh, we have not announced the host yet. We've not announced the host. Can you yeah, t- is also- it a, is it a man? Is it a woman? Can we get any hints? No hints. No hints. Okay. Keeping your cards close to the vest. Yeah, no, we, 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 we keep our, we keep our information tight until it's time. All right. Um, but, uh, it's Cipriani wall street, which is where we've had it for many years. Um, the after party happens in the same space afterwards and it's going to be a really good show. You know, of the coast next couple of weeks, we'll announce the literarian, the decal, our five under 35 honorees. Um, we'll announce, um, our host, the people who are introducing our honorees. It'll be fun. And who who will you be wearing this year? Like I, I feel like I have to ask this at an award show. Like, or is it is it going to be like Valentino or? <laughs> no, you know the funny thing is, I, I hopefully he'll do it again. But one of my dearest friends um, works for a, a designer and always gives me dress. So it's always the same one. But oh. I don't want to blow up the spot. So is it a black? Supposed to give it to me, but yeah, it's black tie. It is black tie. Okay, so the men wear tuxedo. I mean, I think I've seen I've seen the photos yeah. through the years. Uh-huh. And my daddy, like everybody's always like, "What do I do? This tux is from 1985." And it's like, you got to wear the tux, guys. Yeah. Got to dress it up. My dad was like, can I just wear like a black tie? <laughs> and he's like, no, you have to get tux. I'm so sorry. And th- this is the thing, though. I feel like guys sort of have, we, we have it easy because a tuxedo, like just a traditional tux, like you can't go wrong. You know what I'm saying? Like, I feel like with, with women, like the dress, like there's just so much more, there's so many more choices. You know, it's like a sort of infinite. But with guys, it's like, yeah, just a regular tux. There's not that much variation on it. I guess you could try to go with like the tails and the... The yeah, white, no. the white tux, but it is. The problem is the non-updated tux. Right. I'm like responsible for so many dudes updating their tux situation. Yeah, I feel because like they're I... just like, oh, oh, god. <laughs> <laughs> this tux is 30 years old. I feel like yeah. I feel like I've always like whenever I've had to like wear a tux at a wedding, I've always rented a tux, which is, is sort of gross in a way. You're like because. You're thinking about weddings. You're thinking about people like getting super drunk and sweaty. And it's like, who's worn this tux? What happened in this tux that I'm wearing? And the question, too, is like, at what point are you not spending more money on rentals than if you just bought a tux? That's right. But I'm not wearing a tux that often. I need to get invited to more award shows, basically. <laughs> but then all of a sudden you have to, you need a tux and it's like a whole thing. I know. I'm, it's on my list of things to do. I got to get a tux. And I feel like it's also like a, as a man in his early forties, I feel like it's the kind of thing that it's like a rite of passage. Like at some point you, you become a tux owner. Yeah. I mean, although some people don't need tuxes. I mean, it's like, it's such a weird thing. I mean, like I've never, you know, to, to, to sort of run this big gala it's like definitely like i'm pretty low-key <laughs> you know it's like it's like it's funny to find yourself thinking about this like very fancy party every year like i like i have not like historically gone to like a million fancy parties um but i do feel like if you are at all involved in any industry where there are award shows that come up like a tux is handy is there a red car- there's a red carpet is there like do you, yeah, do, you, do- you build a big tent outside like a huge tent so it's an outdoor red carpet um and it's awesome. It's heated. Oh wow! Yeah, I'm really proud of the heaters. I was. I guess it would have to be in New York in like what November. Well, last year it was super. We built all these. We innovated. Our innovations for last year was to build this, you know, big tent outside and have heaters, and then it was like super warm. 
Yeah, I've, I, it's weird. I, I the last time I was in New York was in December, and it was like sixty degrees. Like you never know. It's like uh, it was super warm last year, but every other year that I have ever been to the National Book Awards or after party, it has been the coldest day of the year. Wow. Like just brutal. Well, I'm uh, I'm going to be excited to to track it. Can people watch the show online? Yes, we want everybody to tune into the live stream. It's on our website, and we'll also do it on Facebook and on Twitter. Okay, so you can be like on social media streaming the National Book Award ceremony. What's the date? November fifteenth. November fifteenth. Any hints? We have no hints on like you go you go long list to short list of nominees to the to yeah, the show. Yeah, October fourth, we'll get the finalists. The finalists. So they call it down from what to what. From 40 books to 20 books. And you don't know what the the short list is yet? No. Mm-mm. You don't even I know? Nope. It's so hard because you fall in love with the entire long list. It's like so painful. Yeah, I know. I, I, gotta, I mean, it's nice to be on any list, but it's got to be know. like if you're on the long list and then you don't make the short list, it's got to be like, oh, so close. <laughs> you know? I mean, but just to me, like, I'm just like, you look at this like stack of books and you're like, you're my family. Right, right. And then like, and do- then, like all of a sudden you are. But the thing is, like, we celebrate our long listers forever. Like they count like forever. We want, you know, people to be to directed to amazing literature. So it's like. For us, it's not like a road to the to the winner. It's like different identification points. Like the whole long list, like if I could make every single person that I've ever met read this whole year's long list, I would. Did well it, after we have winners. Does the long list, like do, like, so who goes to the uh, ceremony? The shortlisters go to the ceremony. All the finalists. Yeah, we call them finalists. Finalists. The book are called shortlists. Okay, so you fly them in. They get to go to the show. It's like, it's a big, mm-hmm. mo- it's a big moment. And then they... Yeah. And so all 20 of them are with us. And then... The Miami Book Fair actually flies all 40 of the longlisters down to Miami the day after the awards for their fair. Oh wow. Okay. Mm-hmm. So you get it's to cool. So you get to free, you get to freeze and have like a party in New York and then get like jetted down to Miami. Well, it's like more like raggedly dragging yourself to the airport <laughs> with a hangover you know, with like, a- with a like with a you know just like maybe a hangover and and all of the weight of months and months of brutal work weighing down on you and, and you just hope the sunshine will heal you but you could call it jetting on down to miami if you like <laughs> i'm trying to i'm trying to paint this as a, like a rosy picture <laughs> but yeah it's so glamorous no i mean i remember literally like ugly sleeping on the plane to miami with my head back snoring <laughs> i like that term ugly sleeping because like you ever get up on a plane like you have to go to the lavatory or whatever and by the way the only context in which i ever call a bathroom a lavatory is on a plane i don't know why they've decided to uh <laughs> Why they decided to make that like official, but you're walking like down the aisle, especially on a longer flight. And like when a sizable percentage of people on the flight are all like sort of like head back, mouths open, you're just like, no. uh, it's a lot of humanity. I the planes and the mouth open. It's horrible. <laughs> my mouth is always open and I'm always like, and then I always wake up in a panic. Like my mouth is open. I'm drooling so bad. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. And then like they try to sell you like in the, uh, you know, the on flight, you know, shopping magazine or whatever. They try to sell you those pillows that like you can kind of hug and yeah. you, you fold forward. But I'm like, who's doing that? Who's really bringing one of those things on the? I know. This, I have like one of those neck pillows for long flights. And yeah. it's like I always just end up like wanting to burn it because it's so hard to carry and I have no room in my bag for it. And yeah. it's just like this thing is ruining my life. It's not well, I'll tell you what, it's been uh, really fun talking with you, and I applaud you for the work that you do and that the National Book Foundation does. Uh, it's necessary work, and um, I don't know, I admire people who are have found a way to make their professional lives 
about doing things that really do make a positive difference in our world. And it's not always easy to find that. And so kudos to you. And uh, I wish you well. And I'm, you know, I'm sad that you wouldn't give me any inside scoop on these awards and who's going to get them and who's going to host. But I'm going to find out soon. Okay. Well, I'll have. Thanks for having me. Yeah. No, it's it's a pleasure to to talk with you. And I hope at uh, some point down the road we cross paths. All right, ladies and gentlemen, there you go. That is Lisa Lucas, executive director of the National Book Foundation. If you would like to support the National Book Foundation or just learn more, you can go to nationalbook.org. That's the website, nationalbook.org. You can follow the organization on Twitter, at National Book. It also has Facebook, Instagram, and Tumblr presences. Uh, Best of all, you can follow Lisa herself on Twitter. She's great on uh, social media. Uh, Her handle on Twitter is at LikeAluka. That's at L-I-K-A-L-U-C-A. I think I'm pronouncing that right. Like a Luca, Lika Luca. You can track her down. Lisa Lucas, executive director of the National Book Foundation. The award ceremony, once again, is on November 15th, and it is live streamable. So you can watch, you can uh, enjoy the ceremonies and see who is going to win the big awards. It's great to talk with her. I feel like uh, it's something that was kind of overdue. It's one of those things that I wish I would have thought of sooner or gotten done sooner because these organizations which play, uh, you know, a central role or a vital role in the community, like people don't necessarily know exactly what's going on, or at least I hadn't fully wrapped my head around it. So I hope it shed a little bit of light on the work that the National Book Foundation does and uh, gave you a better sense of how the awards work and all the rest, because these are the kinds of things that I feel like writerly people and readerly people uh, are probably curious about at some point, right? So, and I'm, I do, I will, you know, what I was saying to her at the end, I do admire people who find a way to make their living doing something that involves something they really are passionate about, but that also really does make a positive difference in the world. You know, advancing the cause of books seems to me like a very noble thing to do in our world. So it's great to talk with someone like that. I find that inspiring. It's not always easy in this world to find work that completely uh, melds with one's like highest values. You know what I'm saying? It's like threading a needle. <laughs>